This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, I'm Tom Switzer and this is Between the Lines. Well, with the collapse of Soviet communism and the end of the Cold War, the accepted wisdom held that the US had enjoyed a moment of unipolarity. American global leadership, an American century, indispensable nation, a Pax Americana, benign global hegemony. These became the buzzwords of the US foreign policy establishment in the 1990s. And then after the 9-11 terror attacks, the rhetoric became bellicose. American outrage over the terror attacks, the mental habits of global hegemony, American exceptionalism, all this gave US leaders a clear overriding sense of mission and purpose in the world. However, Presidents Obama and Trump, though of course they expressed themselves in different ways, they wanted to redefine the US role in the world in a way that recognised US limits in an increasingly multipolar world that would not conform to American expectations. These days, though, the Biden administration is striving for a unipolar world that my first guest says no longer exists. So why is America too scared of a multipolar world? And where does Ukraine fit in here? Stephen Walt is a columnist at Foreign Policy Magazine and Professor of International Relations at Harvard University. Steve, welcome back to the program. Uh, It's great to be with you again, Tom. Why has the US been loath to abandon a position of unchallenged primacy in the world? Uh, Well, partly because a position of unchallenged primacy is really nice if you're the uh, unipolar power. If you can get that position and keep it for a long time, it means you don't have to worry about equal powers, peer competitors, uh, things like that. Uh, You have enormous latitude to set your foreign policy. Um, So it's not surprising that the United States has wanted a position like that. The question, of course, is what we do with it when you have that uh, range of opportunity. And what the United States was unwilling to do uh, until maybe recently is abandon trying to shape politics in just about every corner of the world, not just maintaining, you know, favorable balances of power in places that matter, but really trying to spread American values, liberal democracy, et cetera, including a lot of places where it probably wasn't very easy to do. So unfortunately, I think we squandered the opportunity that primacy gave us. Well, you talk about squandering the opportunity. What about those U.S. wars in the Middle East, particularly Afghanistan, but also Iraq? Didn't they uh, expose American limits and weaknesses and as a result hurt U.S. credibility and prestige, which, as a good realist, you know, are useful supplements to power? Uh, no question about it. I mean, first of all, there's just the enormous, enormous material cost of those uh, various wars, you know, estimated at between six and eight trillion dollars, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan together, if you take the sort of long term costs. And the United States could a lot could have done a lot more useful things with that money or just left it in taxpayers pockets, uh, you know, done things at home that we we needed. Um, the second thing it did, of course, was it reminded everybody that the United States was not invincible. Uh, we had a reputation for, you know, being sort of unchallengeable uh, after the first Gulf War and throughout the 1990s. Uh, and of course, Iraq and Afghanistan together showed that there really were limits uh, to what the United States could do. 
Uh, and then finally, uh, that it exposed, I think, a certain degree of hypocrisy uh, within American foreign policy that on the one hand, we would talk a lot about international law and principles and things like that, but we were willing to violate those principles uh, as we did when we invaded Iraq. And you add all of that together and it undermined the favorable position that we had been in prior to September 11th. Yeah, you say not invincible, but fast forward to 2023, Steve, given the bipartisan desire in Washington, Republicans and Democrats are aligned here. They want to inflict military defeat on Russia, notwithstanding a few exceptions on both the liberal left and the conservative right. There's also the US efforts to ramp up this economic and technological battle against Russia. So given all of that, does Biden have a point here? Is it possible that the US could return to a position of unipolarity? I, I don't think so. And, and I would add to what you just said, the fact that we are waging uh, a sort of undeclared economic war against China, where we're trying to restrict mm. their advanced technologies uh, through export mm -hmm. controls and other forms of pressure. So we're trying to inflict a military defeat on Russia and Ukraine and an economic defeat on China. Uh, we're trying to do that at the same time, which is asking a lot. But I think even if we're uh, completely successful in Ukraine and even if we were successful in slowing China's technological development, we're not going to drive them out of the ranks of major powers. China will continue to be a formidable uh, power. Russia is uh, large, uh, controls vital resources, has a large nuclear arsenal. We're not going to be able to disregard Russia entirely. India is rising rapidly. Whether it becomes a true great power, I think, is unknown, but uh, it's not going to be a trivial power by any means. Japan is still the world's third largest economy and is now announced that it's going to double its defense budget by 2027. So I think the future world is going to be a world of, let's call it, very lopsided multipolarity. More than two great powers, more than one great powers, but those great powers are going to be rather unequal. The United States will still be the strongest, China uh, behind it, and then another set of significant powers with their own interests. And it's going to be the uh, maneuvering among those different powers uh, that determines a lot of world politics going forward. But are you overlooking America's enormous strengths here? I mean, the greenback, the dollar, it remains the world's reserve currency. Uh, the Ivy League universities, and you, you've been teaching at Harvard for many decades, they do remain global intellectual trendsetters. The US, as you've mentioned, it remains military, the most powerful nation in the world. And then, of course, there's the um, energy independence. America is energy independent pretty much for the first time in 50 years, whereas China, its major peer competitor, is still heavily dependent on foreign fossil fuels. Stephen Walt. Yeah. Um, well, I think that all of that's true. And it means the United States is actually in very good shape and something Americans should bear in mind that relative to those other major powers, uh, we're remarkably secure. We have all of the things we need for continued prosperity. The United States is still, I think, an innovation engine in lots of different ways. So all of that's true. And it means Americans should you know, exhale, relax a little bit, not worry too much about what's happening in the rest of the world. Our fate will be determined primarily by what we do uh, here at home. Nonetheless, that doesn't mean the United States can tell everybody around the world what to do, you know, and that we can't take the interests of other uh, states into account, particularly on those issues 
where they care more than we do, in part because it's happening, say, right next to their country, as it was uh, for Russia in Ukraine. The United States is in very good shape, will retain a lot of uh, influence around the world, but it's no longer going to be quite as unconstrained as it was uh, back in the 90s. And we've learned, I hope, uh, through events like Iraq and Afghanistan, that trying to remake other societies and doing a lot of social engineering in countries we don't understand doesn't work no matter how powerful we are. All fair points, and you mentioned here at home, and that raises the question, does the problem here have more to do with culture? I mean, if you think about it, the Americans are usually renowned for their optimism, but in recent times, particularly since the invasion of Iraq, America's been, how can I put it, internally consumed by self-doubt, a, a cultural crisis perhaps that stems from expectations about the country's future that no president is likely to meet. Plausible? Well, I think it's plausible and, and it's uh, deeply concerning for people like me. I do think it has some, some roots that are actually more what's happening in the country than what's happening outside. I mean, uh, first, we've had the tremendous increase in economic inequality, uh, rich getting substantially richer, poor not uh, rising up, and of course, middle class hollowing out. Second, we have the gradual change in the racial composition of the United States, where we are no longer going to be an overwhelming, you know, white majority country. Uh, the white Americans are still going to be the largest single group, uh, if you look at that, but not, you know, 80 percent of the country, as it, it was true for much of our, our history as well. Um, so you combine that, and of course, it was appealing to people who didn't like those changes. It was part of Donald Trump's political success, people who were threatened by these big changes. Add to that the rather pernicious short-term self-interest of our political class, and I think Republicans have been worse than Democrats on this score, but both parties are to blame to some degree. Uh, and then finally, the role that money plays in American politics, which is uh, has gotten to, you know, really absurd levels. You throw all of that together and you end up with a very toxic uh, mix of politics, even without throwing in uh, social media, Fox News and all that other stuff. I think those big forces uh, are behind much of this dysfunction that you now see in the American political system. And unfortunately, nobody has a sort of quick, easy push the button and it's all solved. Uh, type solution for it. My guest is Harvard professor Stephen Walt, one of America's leading foreign policy realists. Steve, let's turn to Ukraine. Now, you were at the Munich Security Conference recently and you found a mismatch between what government officials were saying in public and then what they were saying in private. First, tell us about the divide between the West and the rest with respect to Ukraine. This was really striking uh, at Munich, and there's actually some interesting public opinion data uh, that's produ been produced uh, that uh, supports this. Um, if you were a member of the transatlantic community, uh, Europe or America, you know, Ukraine is the most important issue, uh, overwhelming uh, focus there at the conference. Uh, it's seen as the you know fulcrum of the 21st century. The fate of humanity is going to be determined by the outcome in Ukraine, and absolutely the Ukrainians must win because every Everything is hinging upon this. That was kind of the rhetoric you heard from uh, most people in the sort of NATO bubble, if you call it that. 
for the rest of the world, uh, you know, again, to oversimplify the global south, and nobody was defending Putin or Russia, but Ukraine is not seen as the most important issue, not the only issue, certainly not the one that's going to determine uh, the 21st century. They just don't believe that the fate of humanity is going to be determined by whether Ukraine or Russia ultimately controls the Donbass. And there it's self-interest, right? Uh, India, Saudi Arabia, Israel uh, do not want to sever all their ties with Russia for a combination of economic and political reasons. Uh, the global South thinks that the West is being deeply hypocritical, that, you know, they welcome Ukrainian refugees, but they wouldn't re welcome refugees from Syria or from sub-Saharan Africa or from Afghanistan as well. The West sort of dribbled out aid for COVID vaccines, but was willing to pour, you know, $150 billion into Ukraine. So when you know, people from the West, uh, from the transatlantic community start talking about how important Ukraine is and how everyone around the world has to get on board. The rest of the world uh, shakes their head and says, you guys just don't get it, do you? I can just imagine many people asking for understandable reasons that with Russia's invasion of a sovereign independent state, surely the rules-based liberal international order is at stake and all nations, West or the rest, have an interest in upholding those rules. People might agree with that intellectually, but the immediate response you get from outside the transatlantic bubble is that this is rank hypocrisy. That first of all, these rules of the rules-based order were written by powerful Western countries for the most part, not by India, not by uh, states in Africa, elsewhere. But secondly, these are rules that the United States and others have been willing to violate whenever we felt like it. We went into Iraq uh, without authorization from the Security Council. We toppled Gaddafi in Libya, which is not what the UN Security Council uh, resolution uh, authorized. We've conducted drone strikes in lots of countries without asking the permission of the governments, uh, etc. We launched trade wars and imposed sanctions on countries in violation of various uh, aspects of international law. So again, when you go outside the sort of NATO environment and the issue of Ukraine, others immediately say, you know, those are great rules and we'd love it if everyone followed them, but you haven't. So how can you make that, you know, the, the be all and end all today? And that brings us to the Ukraine crisis itself. Now at Munich, Steve, you detected a gulf between the public optimism of the top officials and what you say they're more somber, realist, private reflections. Tell us more. Yeah. So, so the big that the big public addresses, you know, by uh, President Zelensky as well, by Vice President Harris, by. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, there was a, a very, you know, upbeat tone, Ukraine must win. Uh, of course, we must succeed. This is very important. Uh, so it was all, you know, sort of very rah-rah. Uh, and you can understand that to some degree, that in these public statements, you're not going to uh, suggest that you're not optimistic. You want to try and maintain you know, public support and certainly an image of Western unity behind Ukraine. You know, we're behind Ukraine for as long as it takes, etc. Uh, but when you got into private discussions with a wide range of people, uh, they, you got a much more realistic sense. It's not that they think uh, Ukraine is on the ropes, but they think that the goal, for example, of uh, reconquering all of Ukrainian territory back to the 2014 borders, that is to say, including Crimea, is just not realistic. 
Uh, this has become a war of attrition, not maneuver, that both sides have suffered uh, a lot of losses. So neither army, neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians are fielding their best forces now. They're, they're on to their second string, you will, if you will. And those are forces that are going to not be able to break through and suddenly conquer large amounts of territory. I think that's what we've been seeing, uh, you know, the last few months as well. The problem is that having adopted a very public, vocal, and ambitious set of uh, war aims, it's going to be harder to sell what's most likely to happen, which is some kind of messy compromise peace or armistice or ceasefire that doesn't liberate all of Ukrainian territory and doesn't leave anybody particularly happy. Till well, now, this is all very intriguing because the Biden administration, as you've suggested, their support, their rhetorical support for the Ukrainian campaign against Russia keeps increasing. Yes. And this is, I think, going to be a real problem because up until now, they've been able to sell this as a great foreign policy achievement. We pulled NATO together. We've helped the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have fought heroically. The Russians have done badly. This is what we mean by a U.S. global leadership. A year from yes. now, if the war hasn't changed, if we're still in a stalemate, Ukraine is still being damaged and we don't really have a plan B, going to be much harder to sell that as a great success. It's going to start looking more like one of those forever wars that we were trying to avoid. And what if China gives more aid, military aid and support to Russia? Well, I don't think China will. But if it does, this is going to first obviously prolong the war and greatly raise the stakes. I think it's going to be extremely hard for the United States or its allies to let China Sort of determine the outcome here if they are seen as being the sort of critical actor that when it intervened allowed uh, Russia to triumph for something I don't think that will be acceptable that greatly raises uh, the stakes for the Biden administration I think at that point they will start thinking about doing even more I think the possibility of NATO getting directly involved uh, goes way up under those circumstances Still, I don't think China will do that because in some respects, the best Chinese move is to stay on the sidelines, criticize the war itself, and basically tell the rest of the world, look, this is what happens when these other great powers can't get along. You should be letting us have more influence because we don't start wars. We don't fight wars. We're just interested in getting along with everybody and trading and all getting rich. I don't think that's completely true, but that's an easy position for Beijing to take if it stays out. I think that's what they're likely to do. To be continued, Steve, always great to chat with you. Nice talking with you too, Tom. Stephen Walt, a columnist at Foreign Policy Magazine and Professor of International Relations at Harvard University. Up next, are Australia's neighbours in Southeast Asia ready for AUKUS? Well, bipartisanship in Canberra is rare, but one key area where Labor and the Coalition find agreement is AUKUS. That's the military and technological partnership with the US and the UK. Here's the Prime Minister in praise of AUKUS recently. AUKUS is about the future. It further formalises the common values and the shared interests that our three nations have in preserving peace and upholding the rules and institutions that secure our region and our world. 
That was Anthony Albanese at the National Press Club on February 22. Now, the centrepiece of AUKUS is a commitment to produce top quality nuclear submarines for Australia that could operate to meet China's massive military buildup and to help secure air routes and sea lanes in international waters. Now, the polls, they show overwhelming public support for closer cooperation with Washington, which could strengthen our defences and build up the tech industry. Yet regional concerns, most notably in Southeast Asia, they still lurk below the surface. Susanna Patton is Director of the Southeast Asia Program and Project Lead of the Asia Power Index. That's at the Lowy Institute in Sydney. And Peter Jennings is a former senior defence official and the long-time head of ASPE in Canberra. That's the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Susanna, Peter, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Hi, Tom. Susanna, when AUKUS was announced in September 2021, Southeast Asian states were caught by surprise. Tell us more. Well, everyone was caught by surprise by the AUKUS announcement in 2021, but for some Southeast Asian countries, they were not so happy with the announcement, Indonesia and Malaysia in particular. The foreign ministers put out statements of concern. Uh, They were concerned about both the possibility of regional tensions being escalated by the kind of investment in military capability um, that we're seeing through AUKUS, but also about the risks of nuclear non-proliferation. Now, of course, other countries in the region had a different response, and the Philippines in particular was quite publicly positive. They're probably interested in joining some of those kind of tech-sharing agreements, although not at that high end. Singapore was a little bit ambivalent. Some people read the Prime Minister's comment as being positive, but I think it's, it's sort of reserving judgment. And then there are others like Vietnam who might be positive in private. So it was a bit of a, a mixed field. And of course, the views within each country are not necessarily the same either. And one thing that's very clear is that generally regional defence ministries are more positive than the foreign ministries, and that's because they often have quite close ties with the United States. And you mentioned the Philippines there. It recently agreed to four more US military sites on its territory, and it's all designed to manage the threat from a belligerent China. Peter, Susanna there mentioned Jakarta and Kuala Lumpur. Has Canberra reassured those states about their concerns of a regional arms race, nuclear proliferation and whatnot? So I'm probably not to the extent that either capital is going to become a four-square supporter of Australia in AUKUS. Um, I, I just don't think that the foreign ministries of those two countries w- would ever really be prepared to, to do that. Uh, because let's put this in context, the, the wider story is one of, I guess, regional reservation about Australia's military engagement at least as far as diplomatic officers are concerned. Uh, I mean, I think Susanna is quite right to point out that most defence ministries understand perhaps um, more clearly why it is Australia is going down this path. Um, You know, after all, we're we're all dealing with the big strategic issue of our generation, which is the growth of Chinese power in the Indo-Pacific. So for, for me, the aim is not to have... Southeast Asian endorsement of AUKUS. It's it's simply, I think, a, a lesser goal, which is to have acceptance and understanding. And mostly, I think Australia has that in the region. 
we're probably just never going to get quite the public relations wrap that uh, that we would want uh, from the Southeast Asian countries. Susanna, we talk about the downside of tensions with China, Reorcus, and clearly that's a concern in Indonesia and Malaysia, as you mentioned earlier. Does the defence capability conferred by AUKUS, does that outweigh those downsides of the tensions with China? Well, I think clearly in Australia, the the bipartisan judgment is is that it does and that it's going to be worth it for us to obtain this capability, even despite the fact that that China's opposed. But I suppose for many in Southeast Asia, they, they see that a little bit differently. And I think one of the challenges that Australia has had is that the way that we've explained AUKUS um, and the capability has not been very clear. So a lot of what has been discussed by officials and by the, the Prime Minister at the time of the announcement was couched in very sort of broad terms about regional security and stability. And, you know, that probably plays quite well if you already have a high degree of confidence in the role that Australia is playing in the region. If, on the other hand, you're sort of more ambivalent about that, then those kind of very high-level statements don't necessarily sort of assuage your concerns. Well, why does Australia need nuclear-powered submarines anyway, Peter? I mean, it clearly aggravates Beijing and it unsettles some states in the region. So make the case for nuclear-powered submarines. Well, Tom, um, aggravating Beijing is is a great thing uh, when it comes to Australian weapon purchases. Um, I, I hope we never see the day where we're looking for Beijing's approval because largely uh, we need this capability in order to deter China, um, deter China from its aggressive actions uh, in the Indo-Pacific region, doing damage to Australia's strategic interests. And given that we are, you know, decades away from actually realising a real submarine in, in the water under an Australian flag, it's interesting that AUKUS has, frankly, already rattled Beijing and I think the reason for that, uh, quite simply, is because China is very bad at forming trusted alliances between countries itself. It, it sort of wonders a little bit about the capacity of the United States to do the same with partners in, in the Indo-Pacific. And China is also worried about the fact that Australia could have, you know, eight highly capable, uh, stealthy nuclear-powered submarines. Why do we need that particular bit of technology? Well, um, I, I think it's a combination of our geography and the, the stresses that are put on conventional submarines when they need to operate at long distance from Australia. And to be candid about it, you know, our submarines don't operate down in the in the deep southern Arctic oceans. They're, they're operating in the South China Sea and, and north of the continent. They need um, extreme range to be able to do that. And nuclear propulsion provides that because effectively the only constraint on a nuclear submarine's capacity to be submerged is the uh, the sanity of the crew, the, the, the capacity of the submarine to store food to, uh, to feed a crew. In other words, a nuclear submarine can deploy for weeks and weeks and weeks. And given the ranges that Australia's Navy has to contemplate, that makes nuclear propulsion the okay, best option. Okay, but you mentioned the, the growing might of China's military and particularly the Navy here. I mean, the sceptics tuning in might say, will a few new subs in, in the decades ahead be enough to counter an increasingly assertive China? 
I would always like to see more, uh, but I think we've got to be realistic in terms of what the Australian Defence Force by itself can do. But truly, um, I, I don't think there is a maritime strategy for Australia independent of thinking about how we will operate with um, our ally, the United States, and close partners such as Japan. Uh, and so what worries China is not so much eight Australian submarines, if that's what we end up with. It's it's more about the capacity for the US and its allies to operate in coalition through the Pacific in particular. Uh, and I think that does change the strategic equation in favour of the democracies. Well, meanwhile, AUKUS has been described as a wake-up call for ASEAN in Southeast Asia, that it's being sidelined. Uh, Susanna, could this security competition that's clearly heating up between China and the United States, could that push ASEAN into strategic irrelevance? So I don't think Southeast Asia will become strategically irrelevant. And and you mentioned, Tom, the new agreement between the United States and the Philippines for expanded military access there. I mean, that clearly shows that Southeast Asian countries are very sought-after partners for many countries. And so they do have absolutely opportunities to kind of assert their own autonomy and, and influence. And the fact that they're not strategically irrelevant, I guess, is shown by the way that not just China, but also the United States, Japan and Australia are all actively seeking to, to build up their influence, you know, both in terms of defence, but also in terms of economic ties with the region. But the way that the Southeast Asian countries respond to that varies quite considerably. So some see that as an opportunity and Singapore is a good example of this where they'll give China something that it wants and give the United States something that it wants and kind of overall um, potentially play a successful game. Whereas others like, you know, Malaysia might be an example of this, are a little bit less proactive about that and sometimes view the competition as being a bad thing. And, you know, there is a sense in in many countries in Southeast Asia that they're actually more worried about US-China competition than they are about China's rising influence, which is a very different perspective to the one we have in Australia. Peter, the uh, Australian government uh, recently published the Defence Review by Angus Houston and Stephen Smith, the former Defence and Foreign Minister in the Rudd-Gillard governments. And Australia will host quad leaders from the US, Japan and India in late May. What's been the reaction generally, to the extent there's been a reaction, what what do we make of it in in Southeast Asia about both those things? Look, I don't think it's clear. It's probably too early to say uh, that I'm I'm expecting to see the actual detail of that uh, defence strategic review in, in the next couple of weeks. What it will probably do, Tom, is uh, significantly increase the military firepower of the ADF. The hope is in in a relatively short period of time. I I would expect we'd we'd get, if if I can put it this way, the the standard ASEAN reaction, which is uh, from some countries uh, there will be fairly uh, boilerplate diplomatic announcements uh, sort of saying that we should all uh, focus on peace building and uh, don't forget ASEAN centrality, of course, um, uh, and others uh, like Vietnam, which tend to be a bit more um, sort of frank in their um, in their diplomatic comments, might might be a bit more positive about it. Really, the 
public posturing in, in Southeast Asia around Australia's military activities, frankly, doesn't matter too much. Um, most of that is really just fodder around how um, ASEAN countries want to position themselves in public diplomacy. When it comes to thinking about military matters, the strength of military armed forces, their, their capacities to do things in the region, uh, I think Southeast Asian governments tend to ac actually want to see a reasonably strong Australia uh, because that um, helps provide them with some degree of reassurance that, uh, that they're not simply being overwhelmed by Chinese military power in, in their own region. So, so there's a difference, as I say, between, you know, public statements and usually the assurances that are provided more privately that Southeast Asian governments tend to support a strong Australia, an Australia that's allied to the United States. And I think what uh, the Strategic Defence Review will do, what AUKUS does and what the Quad does, is um, in every respect plan for Australia that's going to be stronger in regional security. And mostly that works to the interests of Southeast Asian countries. Can, can I just make this point about sort of the role of Southeast Asia here? One thing that's never going to change is our geography and the fact that we're going to have Indonesia as a neighbour forever. And so to that extent, I think it's really important that we take sort of Indonesia's views in particular on our regional security approaches quite seriously because in any conceivable scenario, it's going to be important for us to have that relationship. And I'm a little bit wary about the sort of the confidence that, that some people have about the fact that views in private might be more positive. Actually, sometimes views in private can be more negative as well. So I just think we need to, to have a balance in our approach. On the one hand, bringing the US and embedding them in the region, and then on the other hand, also building up our relationships to the extent that we can. And this gets to the heart of the matter, Peter, in conclusion. I mean, Susanna says that there are some in the state, in, in the regional areas like uh, Indonesia, uh, they still worry that the Quad and indeed AUKUS raises the risk of confrontation and comes at the expense of engaging Southeast Asian nations on their own terms. Your response? Well, it's not right. Um, I mean, I, I do know that um, when uh, Australia struck an agreement with the United States to see the US Marine Corps uh, rotating out of uh, Darwin, which is, has been happening now for 10 or 11 years, um, th there were uh, individuals inside the Indonesian military uh, saying, look, this just shows that uh, what we're seeing unfold is an Australian plot to take over West Papua. Uh, I've, I've never met a person in Canberra who thought that was going to be part of Australia's uh, strategic objectives <laughs> for the region. Uh, Susanna is right to say that in, in a place like Jakarta, you'll get many different opinions. Um, uh, the place is not a monolith. Uh, there, there are people that are uh, pro-Australia. There are people that are quite strongly anti-Australia in terms of their sentiments, and all of that works through Indonesian politics and, and policy making. We need to have the best possible relationship we can have with Indonesia, uh, but my career experience is that it's never going to be the close strategic partnership that Australia says it aspires to. And successful or not, um, we, we need an Australia which has the capacity to look after its own interests 
militarily and diplomatically in the region. You know, I'm a huge supporter of the US alliance, but I think um, we, we guarantee the survival of that alliance if, if we're a stronger military and diplomatic player ourselves. Um, and so looking after Australia's own interests is, for me, the, the number one priority. And hopefully we can persuade our neighbours in Southeast Asia that that's work, that works well for them as well. Uh, but we need to do it regardless of, you know, how well that plays in Jakarta and the other Southeast Asian capitals. That was Peter Jennings from the Australia Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra and Susanna Patton from the Lowy Institute. Well, my next guest has been subjected to intense media scrutiny, not just across the UK, but also my colleague Patricia Carvelis on RN Breakfast. Why? What had my guest done to end up at the epicentre of a media category five storm? <laughs> well, British journalist Isabel Oakshot, this is the complaint, betrayed a source. She'd been commissioned to ghostwrite the diaries of Matt Hancock, He's a government health minister during the 2020-21 lockdowns. Hancock, you see, had given Isabel thousands of his personal WhatsApp messages written during the course of the pandemic. And now those messages are headline news. They reveal how and why the government's inner circle formed their pandemic response. The media mind meld, well, it's up in arms. But hang on, is there a contradiction here? On the one hand, the media demand transparency, and the public's right to know. But when this particular whistle was blown, there's been howls of media criticism. To find out what's going on, I welcome Isabel Oakshot back to Between the Lines. Hello, Isabel. Thank you for having me on. Now, let's start with the substance of your revelations. What's the most sensational news that you and the Daily Telegraph have uncovered from Hancock's personal messages? I find this question quite a difficult one because there is so much in these messages. The cache of information runs to 2.3 million words, over 100,000 WhatsApp communications between all the key players involved in the pandemic response, from the Prime Minister to the then-Chancellor to our Chief Medical Officer to our Chief Scientific Advisor to the people in charge of the vaccine policy it is an enormous cache of information to go through. And The Telegraph has run now a week's worth of many, many pages of a big broadsheet paper devoted to what we find in those messages. And whilst there are you know, a number of extraordinary eye-popping individual revelations, whether it is the plan on the part of our then Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, to, quote, frighten the pants off people mm. by, quote, deploying the variant when there was a new variant of coronavirus, or whether it's the fact that he didn't take advice from the chief medical officer to reduce the mandatory period for self-isolation for people who'd been in contact with somebody who might be infected. Uh, he didn't take advice to reduce that period because he didn't want it to look like the government had been wrong the first time round. So, what does that mean? It means that 
hundreds of thousands of people probably wasted an awful lot of time twiddling their thumbs at home and having a pretty rotten time when they could have been out and about or being at work. So these are very, very significant revelations. But much more important, I think, is the tone of the messages uh, as much what isn't prioritised in discussions and the insight we get into the policy making on the hoof and the preoccupations of the politicians concerned. We have drawn back the curtain on the pandemic response in a way that no other country or official investigation could. Well, you also reveal that Hancock said in January 2020, and this is after the news of the virus emerged in China, but before the crisis in the West, he says that an outbreak could be good for his political career And you reveal that Hancock and others schemed to suppress scientific research that didn't support their political goals. And this is so serious, isn't it? I mean, let's take those in two parts. They're two very different things. I mean, all the way through this, we see uh, a politician who's seized an unprecedented level of power. Uh, He was one of really four elected politicians in our government who controlled the pandemic response. Cabinet government, to all intents and purposes, the the old checks and balances, even within the cabinet, disappeared, never mind uh, MP scrutiny or scrutiny from those on the opposition benches largely collapsed. And power was concentrated in the hands of just four men, the prime minister, the then chancellor, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, and a politician named Michael Gove. And between them, those four effectively stitched up the response. Um, And we we know this with all sorts of evidence that comes out in the lockdown files. But also yesterday, we had former cabinet minister Jacob Rees-Mogg breaking ranks saying he was cut out of the loop. This is how it worked. Uh, In terms of the vanity of politicians, I mean, probably none of us should be remotely surprised Mm. about that. But it's pretty distasteful as a theme throughout these messages to see a politician whilst carrying the great and very serious burden of responsibility of saving lives, something he certainly took seriously, also had another eye on how this all looked for him. And the Wall Street Journal editorial this week says about your revelations, quote, the glib resort to casual authoritarianism is shocking even for those who are cynical about politicians. That's the Wall Street Journal. So your line is, and this is what your defenders would say, that the COVID policies clearly became a question of politics rather than science. I get that. But see, Context is everything, Isabel. Now, if we go back to the early days of the pandemic, and they were bleak times indeed, there was so much that was unknown. So wasn't Mm. it the right course of action to err on the side of extreme caution and do whatever it took to prevent the spread of the deadly virus, especially before a vaccination was found? Well, I actually agree with that. Um, I've never said it was wrong to lock down ever. Uh, I've never actually criticised the initial very short lockdown. I think that was absolutely the right thing to do. You know, if you are uh, facing an unknown threat, a threat that we've already, what you do know about that threat is that it could well prove deadly for a significant number of your population, then of course you've got to keep everybody safe, the number one duty of the government, and then take stock, see what information that there is to go on. Um, And it was right to do that, in my opinion. And nothing about 
the Daily Telegraph coverage or anything I've said has suggested anything to the contrary, actually. Yeah, but but, but the, his messages show how the use of fear was deployed, you know, frightening the pants of people. In hindsight, that does look like a drastic step, but given, again, just back to this fundamental point, the extraordinary circumstances, I mean, fear well, no, did I'm make people take the... Well, no, I'm going to disagree with that one because, yeah, because when he used those that terminology... We're talking about almost a year into the pandemic. So by mm. then, the vaccine was in the UK pretty much on its way. It had been developed um, you know, at that stage just before Christmas uh, 2020. We already knew a vast amount about this novel uh, virus. We knew that its mortality rate was really very, very low amongst young, younger, mm. healthy people. Uh, unfortunately, it was a dangerous virus for those over the age of the average life expectancy, people in their 80s, people who are very overweight and people who had other health conditions. But for the vast majority of younger people, this virus did not pose a deadly risk and there was no need to, quote, frighten the pants off people. Hancock says the messages released so far have been cherry picked to cast him in a negative light. I don't think that he's continued making that argument because so many messages have been put out there. But there's an interest. I mean, there's a very easy response to that if he feels that way, which is that he can easily uh, put out the messages that he thinks paint a different picture. I mean, I've seen them all and I don't have an agenda to discredit Matt Hancock. This is not about Matt Hancock and it's certainly not about me. It is about issues of fundamental overwhelming national importance. And the, the trouble here is that the public inquiry into these really dreadful and difficult events, and by the way, I want to give some credit to politicians and our leaders for getting some things right, but that public inquiry is not even properly underway yet. It hasn't started taking evidence from its the most important witnesses. We're three years in now. Uh, there is no deadline to our public inquiry. I find that really, really unsatisfactory. And uh, Sweden produced likely... their inquiry a year ago, I think, didn't they, Sweden? They finished. It, yeah, they wrapped it up. But back to Hancock. And in fairness to him, this is a point made by Simon Jenkins. He's the veteran British editor and columnist. He says, surely leaders must be free to discuss policy in private. He says, Hancock's messages look embarrassing and they look chaotic but this is Simon Jenkins, but such leaks could do genuine harm to political debate. Isabel Oakshaw. I tell you what does real harm to, to good governance, and that is such information never coming to light because journalists don't bother doing their jobs and asking the right questions. And I think parts of the media have a lot to answer for throughout this entire pandemic that they goaded and egged the government on for more lockdowns. And they didn't scrutinise the policies. They didn't interrogate our politicians as to the likely collateral damage of decisions that were taken, the rationale uh, for things like asking forcing school children to wear masks in the classroom for very long periods, the consequences of shutting down schools, we could go on and on. So what is dangerous for democracies is a set of circumstances in which elected representatives seize unprecedented levels of power over our everyday lives, ensure that there's very, very little political scrutiny of that in the parliamentary process, and then the journalists all just lap it up. That's dangerous. 
I'm not going to play yeah. that game. Isabel, the UK obviously wasn't alone in locking down and restricting freedoms in order to curb the spread of the pandemic. Is it fair to say that just about every other jurisdiction in the world also got it wrong? Absolutely. I think it's. I think we need to look to what happened in Sweden and also to what happens in Florida, but particularly in Sweden, uh, to see how did this actually work out. Sweden was an outlier in Western democracies. They didn't have mandatory lockdowns of the kind we had here. Uh, There was a wobble fairly early on in their response, and they were getting an awful lot of criticism for uh, what was seen as a um, an unethical experiment in trying to carry things on as mu- as as much as usual as possible, but actually overall, when you look at the excess mortality figures, which you know now enough time has passed for a proper assessment of those, Sweden actually did pretty well and better than most of us. So look, there's huge lessons to be learned here. I don't, I'm not for a minute over claiming for the lockdown files that they answer every question and produce every bit of evidence required to come up with the best possible lessons. But they're a really good start in getting it out there. And why doesn't everyone else put their stuff out into the public domain? Because the public inquiry, I'm afraid, isn't going to give us any answers anytime soon. In hindsight, what could have or should have been done differently? Well, what we certainly should never have done and should never do again, unless a virus is of real risk to children, is shut down schools. That was a deplorable, utterly regrettable decision that has had devastating consequences for many, many tens of thousands of children. Generational impact. I think it was an appalling decision. And I think we need much greater checks and balances before children are locked out of their own classrooms again. The reason you've gone public here is, correct me if I'm wrong, you've felt that those who'd been locked down, they should be able to understand the reasons behind those decisions. I think we all deserve to understand the reasons behind those decisions. And and let me say that, you know, take ourselves out of the media bubble here. You know, the navel gazing about what are admittedly important issues about how stories are approached. Let's take ourselves out of that for a minute to the reaction from ordinary people. I can tell you that I have had hundreds, possibly thousands of emails from people of letters, of responses on Twitter, through direct messages, all of them saying thank you. Uh, I won't say all of them because there's always a bit of criticism from some in there, but a massive outpouring. <laughs> well, you're getting plenty in the media. Um, That's interesting. Of, so a lot of ordinary of, people of will stop you and talk to you about these issues. Yes. I mean, a guy yesterday, he actually got off the train when he saw me getting off. It wasn't his stop. He got off to come and say thank you for this. So this isn't about me um, saying I'm some kind of hero. The point is that people finally feel that the things they suspected are actually, they had good grounds for being concerned about the response, that they weren't going mad at the time, that things were being done in an ill-advised or flawed kind of way. And finally, they feel that some balance has been injected back into the debate. And the reaction from ordinary people has just been extraordinary. It wasn't something that I expected. That was Isabel Oakeshott, British journalist and international editor at Talk TV. The lockdown files, the story she broke, features in the UK Telegraph. She's also the author with Matt Hancock of Pandemic Diaries, the inside story of Britain's battle against COVID. 
March 20 marks the 20th anniversary of the US invasion of Iraq. That was in 2003. It was designed to topple Saddam Hussein and to disarm his regime of the weapons of mass destruction that Western intelligence claimed he had. Now, it's widely believed the war will go down as one of the major intelligence and military fiascos in American diplomatic history. So why did the George W. Bush administration embark on this misadventure? Melvin Leffler is one of the most distinguished U.S. diplomatic historians. First, and in my view, most importantly, was the factor of fear. And fear of another attack replicating in some ways or being even worse than the attack on 9-11. And those things were occurring exactly when there was an anthrax scare in the United States. Just a couple of weeks after the attack on 9-11, anthrax spores began circulating in the U.S. mail. A handful of people, including postal workers, were killed. Then these anthrax spores turned up in the House and Senate office buildings in Washington, D.C. So, But it was widely feared at the time that there would be another attack that Saddam Hussein was developing or accelerating or possessing biological and chemical weapons, and that these weapons of mass destruction might find their way into the hands of terrorists. That was Professor Melvin Leffler. He's author of Confronting Saddam Hussein, George W. Bush and the Invasion of Iraq, a new book on how fear, power and hubris led to the mess in Batamia. That's next time on Between the Lines. Hope you can tune in then. I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.